consider Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 27. Today we shall address from our text the matter of riches and wealth. It's interesting how many people are so quickly inclined to dismiss a text like this as not really saying anything to them. Why? Because they do not view themselves as being rich. Well, what is it to be rich? How much makes a person rich? Even those among us who seem barely able to make ends meet every month would be viewed as rich by many throughout the world who live on mere bread and water, who live on the streets, who have no access to clean water, to refrigeration, to heating, or sanitary bathroom facilities. Wealth like beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. The Lord does not give a specific definition from which to work in identifying here who is rich, but rather addresses a sin which is common to all of us whether we view ourselves as rich or not. The sin of covetousness or trusting in riches. For whether we view ourselves as rich or poor, within the higher, middle, or lower income bracket, we all struggle with covetousness to varying degrees. Those who have find it very difficult to part with what they have for a good and righteous and holy cause. Or they want to spend what they have upon their own pleasures with little regard of the needs of others. Those who do not have find themselves continuously focused upon what they don't have and want want to have, or what they would do with the money if they had it, and what they would purchase with that money. Thus, whether we place ourselves among the haves, or whether we place ourselves among the have-nots, the matter of looking to riches to meet our needs or desires, rather than looking to Jesus Christ, is a temptation which faces us all. Let us then consider together the following two main points from our text. First of all, the sin of trusting in riches. In Mark 10, verses 23 through 24, and the second main point, the consequence of trusting in riches. Mark chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. First of all, then, the sin of trusting in riches. Let us look at Mark chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, 
How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Last Lord's Day, we saw how Christ performed some internal surgery upon the soul of a rich, young ruler who came to him asking what he should do, and I emphasize the word do, what he should do in order to inherit eternal life. The rich, young ruler wanted to do something. However, Christ wanted him to realize he could do nothing in order to inherit eternal life. For eternal life is a free gift received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. The Lord directed the x-ray of his word to the sin of covetousness in the life of this man by commanding him to go forth to sell all that he had and to give it to the poor and to follow him as his disciple. This the rich young ruler was unwilling to do, for he accounted the riches of his earthly wealth to be of greater value than the riches of Jesus Christ. His faith was in his earthly wealth. Thus he walked away from the Lord with sorrow. Not a sorrow induced from having to walk away from Jesus Christ, from Him who was most valuable, but rather a sorrow induced from having been commanded by Christ to walk away from His earthly wealth and riches. See, this was not the first time one had come as it were, running to Christ outwardly, following Christ outwardly, and then had turned away from Christ because there was no true saving faith. You'll remember in John chapter 6, verse 66, there the Scripture says that many of His disciples withdrew from Him because of the hard sayings, because of the truth that He taught concerning them needing to eat of His body and to eat of His blood. That is, by faith to partake of Jesus Christ in His death and His resurrection, to partake of Christ in this way. And here likewise, we find this rich young ruler having run to Christ making, as it were, a good start, not caring what others might think about him as he ran to Christ, him being of prestige and position. But when it comes down to what is true faith, he was void of that faith, though he made a good start, because his faith did not have Jesus Christ as the object His faith was misplaced. It was misdirected. His faith was in his riches. Now, the Lord, with that particular incident that has just occurred, looks at his disciples 
and takes advantage of that situation to further instruct his own disciples concerning this matter of trusting in riches. Likewise, dear ones, when someone among us deserts the truth that they formally professed, although it is sad, yet the Lord always uses it to teach further lessons to all of us about sin, our own sin, not just the sin of others, about error, about the truth. When those who were once a part of us leave us, when they appeared to run alongside of us, but then they take off in a different direction. It is not a time to, to give up the truth that we profess, that we believe to be faithful and agreeable to the Word of God, but a time for reflection. The time, as Jesus does here, to further elaborate on some very important truths concerning his word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, that schisms and departures from truth come within the church in order to demonstrate who are approved and who are faithful, and by implication, those who are not. Yes, we're sad. And that happens. But God has great things to teach us, even in times like that. The Lord gets the attention very quickly of the disciples by saying, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? In in other words, what the Lord is saying, with what difficulty shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Remember that this statement is not made in a vacuum, but as I said, is based upon what just has occurred with this rich young ruler. It was his unwillingness to look in faith to Christ as more valuable than his earthly riches that had turned him away in unbelief from the free gift of eternal life offered to him in Jesus Christ. Let us be sure that we understand that the Lord here is not condemning wealth, riches, money, property, or material possessions in and of themselves, as if these were evil things. Nor is Christ even condemning those who possess much by way of these earthly riches. For consider that it is God Himself, dear ones, who blesses men with wealth and riches. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7, There, the prayer of Hannah. That is God who makes rich and who makes poor. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord maketh rich. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 
verse 19. We read, Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, speaking of the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Furthermore, consider that believers were greatly blessed by God with riches in the Scripture. Whether it be Job or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, Daniel, Zacchaeus, the centurion whose servant was healed by Jesus, or Cornelius, and the others. Thus, dear ones, it is not earthly riches or wealth in and of themselves that prevent one from entering into the kingdom of God and inheriting eternal life. It is something else, as we shall soon see, that prevents people who are wealthy from entering into the kingdom of God. Well, this blunt, uninterpreted statement of Christ in verse 23 turns the head of the disciples in Mark 10, verse 24. There it says, they were astonished at the statement of Christ. Astonished, perhaps, in that it seemed as if Christ was declaring that riches themselves, that the riches of the wealthy themselves, in and of themselves, make it difficult for one to receive eternal life. Well, Christ then clarifies what it is about riches and the rich which make it so difficult for the rich to receive by faith the free gift of eternal life. No doubt that unqualified statement of Christ in verse 23 was designed to catch the disciples' attention. Verse, as we read in verse 24, the design of the Lord is to further qualify and clarify what he meant by that statement. <clears throat> And Christ does, in verse 24, clarify that it's their trusting in their earthly riches rather than trusting in Christ that is the problem. For there he says, in verse 24, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. This trusting in earthly riches, dear ones, is not only condemned here in Mark 10, verse 24, but in other passages of Scripture as well. For example, in Psalm chapter 52, verses 7 and 8, <clears throat> there we read, Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches 
and strengthened himself in his wickedness. And then there's a contrast. Rather than trusting in riches, listen to what he says in verse 8 of the same chapter. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. See, there is where the trust of the righteous is, is in the mercy of God. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, likewise we find this condemnation against those who trust in riches. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but you're here today, gone tomorrow. Put your faith and your trust in the living God who supplies everything that you need. Because he gives it to you, you can enjoy it to his glory. What does it mean to trust in riches? Well, it is to look to earthly possessions as more valuable to us than Jesus Christ. It is, a look, it is to look to uh, earthly possessions as the source of our true joy and peace and contentment in this life. It is to put off embracing Christ as He is freely offered to us in the gospel because of what we might or because of what He might call us to give up as His disciples. It is, dear ones, to enjoy and find more pleasure in our earthly possessions than we find in Jesus Christ and the benefits of His salvation. Trusting riches is a misplaced faith. It does not mean that there is no appreciation for Christ. Certainly this rich young ruler had some appreciation for Christ. It does not mean that there is no appreciation for the ordinances of Christ or for the commandments of Christ. It means that Christ is not the sole object of one's faith. Rather, there is a competing object of faith, namely the God of earthly possessions. This is what James calls friendship with the world, which makes one an enemy of God according to James 4.4. 4. Paul makes it ever so clear to us in 1 Timothy 
Verse 17, that the living God alone is to be the object of our faith. And it is he who blesses us with earthly possessions to enjoy. But he's to be the object. The giver is the object, not the gift. We're to enjoy the gift, but not to enjoy the gift more than the giver of the gift. Well, let us probe a little deeper that we might honestly evaluate whether we have been ourselves trusting in riches as opposed to trusting in Christ. Ask yourselves the following questions. What is honestly and sincerely our chief goal in life? <clears throat> is it to embrace Christ and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ to the glory of God? Or is it to embrace a better job, a bigger home, a newer car, or a larger bank account? Let me also add at this particular point that it is possible to have a misplaced faith by way of trusting not in riches per se, but in our children, in our spouse, in doctors, in vitamin supplements, in our calling, even the gospel ministry, to, to put so much trust and confidence in the calling that we forget who it is who has called us to this calling. That we are not to enjoy, as it were, the calling apart from the one who has given us this calling. We cannot enjoy what God has given to us unless we enjoy the giver of these good gifts. We may place our faith again in the ordinances or in the commandments of God. See, we can mis have misplaced faith in many, many things, trusting in those things to move us into an acceptable position in the sight of God. And those things in and of themselves are not evil and wicked. They're good, but if they are a misplaced faith, we're not trusting in Christ. We're trusting in something other than Christ. Those are things that we ought to use to the glory of God. But we cannot place our faith in those things. So we must be ever so careful that what we do for Christ or what we do for others does not become more valuable or important to us than the Lord Jesus himself. This is just another version of trusting in our riches. All these other things that I mentioned. It is as well a misplaced faith. A second question by which you evaluate whether we are trusting in riches or trusting in Christ is how we view ourselves determined by what we possess or by what, uh, what uh, others think of us? Do we supremely view ourselves as truly successful and blessed because of our union to Jesus Christ or because of our union to our earthly possessions and the applause of others? What in your mind makes you truly successful? In the most 
important and significant sense of success. Another question. Are there any earthly possessions with which we would be unwilling to part if the Lord should take them from us? Or call us to sell in order to minister to Christ or to others? If so, it's an indication we are trusting in our possessions, our riches, rather than trusting in Christ. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 4, Proverbs 23, verse 4 says, Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that we are not to work hard at uh, seeking to, uh, to better ourselves in our economic condition. That doesn't, it doesn't, when it says labor not to be rich, it doesn't mean that we ought not to be working diligently uh, in that respect. Applying ourselves as we are able to with our gifts, and the graces God has given to us to be as productive in this world as possible. But when that becomes, again, by way of comparison to how we labor to be found in Christ, and not in a works righteousness way, but by way of our endeavoring, seeking to enjoy Christ and find communion with Christ, when the dollar sign becomes more important to us than our heavenly riches and the benefits of Christ and serving Christ, Jesus himself, then we have certainly violated this commandment in Proverbs 23.4 that says, Labor not to be rich. Don't make that your primary goal in your life, to be rich. There are certainly things far more important in life than that. Proverbs 28.20 It says, A faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. Don't be hasty. Don't make those types of rash decisions that put you in a place where you're going to make immoral decisions in order to become rich. If God blesses you with wealth, Praise be to the Lord, but do do so honestly. Do so with your eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus Christ each step of the way. Well, from our text, what is it about riches that makes it so difficult for a man to trust Christ alone for his eternal salvation? 
let me suggest a few things. Riches apart from the grace of God so complicate a person's life that they more often than not become all-consuming and become that to which a person will look in order to have all his needs met. Rather than looking to God, he looks to his riches apart from the grace of God. Furthermore, riches apart from the grace of God incline a person toward a sinful self-sufficiency where he has no need of Jesus Christ, of God, and of his need of the Lord, his dependency upon the Lord. Again, riches apart from the grace of God never say enough. Riches apart from the grace of God, the word enough is not in their vocabulary. It's not in its vocabulary. For its appetite is never satisfied. The more it is fed, the bigger it grows. The bigger it grows, the more it needs and wants and desires. It is a vicious cycle apart from the grace of God. And for these reasons that the Lord says, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. How can we overcome this grave and serious sin in our lives? Again, let me propose to you some means of overcoming this particular sin. And I'm sure this is not intended to be an exhaustive list. I'm sure there are many others which you might add. First of all, by embracing Christ as our only object of faith and our most prized and valuable possession, every day waking up to the fact that we are rich because we have Jesus Christ. We have no true wants or lacks in our life because we have Jesus Christ. Secondly, by daily seeking to enjoy Christ above all earthly possessions through His appointed means. Not merely at the beginning of our salvation, but continuing through this life of faith daily, seeking to enjoy Christ in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, by learning contentment in Christ, Paul says he's learned contentment. It's not something that just happens by osmosis. It's not something that just automatically falls out of heaven. It is certainly something which Jesus Christ, as a grace, has purchased for us. It is something that we begin to enjoy more and more of as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. But we won't grow in that grace if we are in bitterness, and in anger directing that toward God for the circumstances in which He has placed us. 
We won't be growing in, in our contentment. We won't be learning what it is to be con- content in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is rather our reaction. And even when the Lord calls us for his cause to forsake earthly possessions, that we, by forsaking earthly possessions, do not become victims, but we show ourselves victors, even if we lose all, because we're walking in the path of the one who has overcome all, who forsook all to fulfill and to keep the will of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're overcomers, even if we must forsake all, even our own lives for the sake of Christ. We're overcomers, not victims, but more than conquerors through Christ. Fourthly, by understanding that earthly riches are temporal and fleeting. As we said earlier, they are here today and they are gone tomorrow. But the riches of Jesus Christ are eternal. They never pass away. There is never any less of the riches of Christ, no matter how much it is that we draw from that account. That account continues to be a more than abundant account that we can draw upon 24 hours throughout the day. There will still be as much as there ever was of Christ's riches to draw upon and to enjoy. Fifthly, by seeking the grace of God to hate and despise this sin as grievous so that we apply ourselves in faith to renewed obedience every day, asking the Lord to give to us a sincere sorrow and grief, not merely to prick our conscience, because if we simply stop there, we can simply become upset about the fact that our conscience is pricked, but that we actually develop and pray for a sincere and holy hatred for that particular sin. And not that we stop there with simply a a, a holy hatred and sorrow and grief for that sin, but that we continue from that point and ask the Lord to renew our obedience to follow after Him the following day, the next day. And finally, by always realizing, as we have noted that Jesus Christ has already purchased for you and promised to you power to overcome the sin. It's not as though you have to work up anything. It's not as though you have to reach a certain level of attainment in in your spiritual walk or life. It's simply there And by faith, the newest of Christians can draw upon that same account that the oldest of saints can to overcome this sin.
second main point this Lord's Day is the consequence of trusting in riches. Verses 25 through 27. Jesus continues by saying, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. The consequence of those who trust in their riches rather than in Christ is that they find themselves in an impossible situation apart from the grace of God. They find it impossible for them to be saved. This consequence is first illustrated by Christ and then articulated by Christ. The Lord illustrates the consequence that befalls those trusting in riches in verse 25 when he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Some have objected that it is not a camel that is in view here, but rather a different Greek word meaning cable, a larger rope. Uh, This variation is due uh, to a particular variation that finds itself in some manuscripts, uh, a variation of merely one letter in the middle of the word. From kamelon, meaning camel, to kamelon, meaning cable. Clearly, the word for camel is the accurate uh, reading as attested by the vast majority of manuscripts. And the word for cable was probably added more to soften perhaps the what appeared to be the, the impossible illustration that was used by Christ, or perhaps it was just a, a, scribal, uh, a scribal error uh, just, uh, that was uh, introduced into uh, a manuscript and was copied by, by other manuscripts. But it has the effect, whether intentional or unintentional, of softening the illustration of a camel proceeding through an eye of a needle as opposed to a rope. I suppose in one sense it's just as impossible to take a a cable through an eye of a needle as it is a camel, but certainly it's far more exaggerated to talk about a camel going through the eye of a needle than a cable or a rope. The Lord also used uh, a camel in another context, which was equally impossible. You recall in Matthew 23, verse 24, they're speaking uh, concerning woes to the Pharisees. He says, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. They spit out a gnat and then they swallow a camel. Talking about, again, the gross hypocrisy on the the part 
of these Pharisees, their double standards and what they require themselves as opposed to others, or what they require from certain aspects of the law, but not other aspects of the law. <clears throat> so I submit that the, the accurate, the faithful, the true reading is, as we find it in our text here, it's a camel through the eye of a needle. Others have sought to remove the, the impossibility of this illustration by claiming, and I might add, without historical or archaeological evidence, that the eye of a needle was a small gate in the walls of a city through which one must pass if he should come after the larger main gates were closed, that there was a very narrow small gate through which he would pass with, with his camel, uh, upon which perhaps the camel would have to crawl almost through this, this gate because it was so small. But as I said, there is no historical or archaeological evidence indicating that that gate was called the eye of a needle. <clears throat> but the illustration which the Lord here uses is not intended to show the mere difficulty of one who trusts in riches in entering the kingdom of God, but rather the impossibility of such a one in entering the kingdom of God. Therefore, the illustration of Christ is perfectly fitted to teach this truth. There is nothing that a man who trusts in his earthly riches can do in order to be saved. It is utterly impossible. It's not hard from, from, from the perspective of whether he might or maybe. It is impossible when looked at in that sense. He cannot. It's as impossible as a camel jumping through the eye of a needle. Now, the disciples are so astonished beyond measure at the illustration used by the Lord that they inquire among themselves in Mark 10.26, who then can be saved? Disciples seem so shaken by Christ's illustration that they wonder among themselves whether anyone can be saved at all. If such is the case for the most privileged class of people, who can attain to salvation? Well, the omniscient Christ knows the secrets of the heart. And he knew the question which the disciples had asked, even if it was among themselves. And he clearly articulates in Mark 10, verse 27, the doctrine illustrated by the impossibility of the camel passing through the eye of the needle. When he says, <clears throat> with man or with men, it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. He first articulates the truth. With man, it is impossible. It appears now that the, the, the disciples having uh, 
generalize this question, who then can be saved? The Lord also generalizes, I believe, the, the response with men in general, not just with rich men, but with men in general, it is impossible to be saved. Every man by nature is as unable to be saved as a camel being threaded through the eye of a needle. If that doesn't demonstrate the utter futility of man in seeking to enter heaven by any other door, by any other needle than Christ, I don't know what does. Therefore, man, his riches, his good works must be altogether forsaken as that in which a man trusts if he would have eternal life. He must turn away entirely from himself and see only needs in his own life, only desperation, only that which is lacking but he must turn for everything he needs outside of himself to Jesus Christ alone. The second part of that truth is not that it's merely with men it is impossible, but with a promise, with God all things are possible. With this hope, with this absolute certain hope, with God, all things are possible. God is able to do what is impossible for man to do. And dear ones, He has done the seeming impossible, performed the seeming impossible in the covenant of grace. For Christ perfectly fulfilled in every jot and tittle of what God required and which man could not fulfill due to his corrupt nature, due to his sin, which disabled him, which slew him, which killed him, Jesus Christ fulfilled perfectly. And every time, dear ones, one turns in saving faith to Jesus Christ, the greatest of God's miracles is performed. The impossible occurs and is performed by the Lord in the salvation of dead sinners in making them alive to Jesus Christ. If this is the greatest of miracles, dear ones, that God performs, how can we ourselves forget about such important business, whether it is our children, whether it is our parents, whether it is our brother, our sister, extended family members, friends, associates, how can we forget that which is of greatest significance? Yes, the impossible, the seeming impossible, at least 
to man occurs. When one comes to Christ, there is a new creation in Jesus Christ. As we close, dear ones, I simply want you to understand very clearly what saving faith is. Saving faith is embracing the God who works the impossible. It is casting oneself upon the God who cannot lie. And therefore, saving faith receives the promise of eternal life with confidence through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because he looks not to his utter inability and futility, he looks to the God who works the impossible. If then God, dear ones, has shown himself to be the God of the impossible through Jesus Christ in our salvation, dear ones, will he show himself to be anything less than that in our sanctification and in our walk of faith? Will he show himself to be anything less than the God of the impossible every day to the Christian? The same God who works that which is impossible to man in saving us is the God who works that which is impossible in sanctifying us and presenting to himself a bride without spot or wrinkle. Are we not encouraged at that particular truth that he is the God of the impossible to come to him with that same confidence, trusting in Him as the Lord who works that which is impossible in our lives every day, regardless of the afflictions, regardless of the trials, regardless of the needs that we have, are we not encouraged and invited to come to the God of the impossible? Yes, it is very possible that the God of the impossible may not immediately and miraculously deliver us out of every trial. But then again, the God of the impossible promises that we will not go through any trial without Him, that He will go with us and He will grant to us the grace and the strength to sustain us every step of the way. This is the promise of the God of the impossible, the God who cannot lie. Where is your faith today? Is your faith in the circumstances? Is your faith in that which is outward, in a job, in riches, in family, in a minister, in a church, in outward ordinances? Or is your faith firmly anchored in the God of the impossible? I close by reading to you what Paul says at the conclusion of his own prayer regarding the God of the impossible in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, 
Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father, we are brought to shame as we consider how we have disgraced thy, thy holy name through our weakness of faith, through our misplaced faith. O Lord, we pray that Thou would have mercy upon us, that we would trust in Thy mercy, that we would trust in Thy grace, that we would trust in the, the faithfulness of Christ and in the power of Christ this day. O Lord, we pray that Thou would give to us renewed faith, renewed conviction, and renewed obedience to follow the Lord and to look to Him alone as our only hope of eternal salvation, as our only hope of sanctification, as our only hope of glorification. Our Father, we do praise Thee and we pray our God that this grace would be poured out upon not only upon us but upon our children as well that Thou would grant to them, Lord, the saving faith to look to the God of the impossible who works wonders for His people. We ask, O oh Lord, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.